audio check. On this episode, we have the CEO and president of eTech RX. eTech RX is a company that's created an FDA-approved ingestible event marker. It basically embeds a sensor um, into a gel cap that patients can take, and you can measure and monitor it here. And so it's pretty cool. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of RX Radio. I'm your host, Richard Waith, and I have a very special guest with, him, with me here today, Harry Travis. He's a pharmacist and president and CEO of eTech RX. Harry, welcome to the show. Hi, Richard. Great to be here. Thank you. So you are in an extremely, I think, interesting space um, with what you're currently doing with your company. And I'm really excited to dive into that. But before we get there, I want to start with kind of the journey and kind of a little bit about you yourself before we get to um, before we get to eTech Direct. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey. Okay, well, a little bit of a long resume. I'll try to keep it brief. I'm a proud graduate of the University of Pittsburgh School of Pharmacy, and you will hear a, a strong thread of specialty pharmacy. And it seems like so many specialty pharmacists or pharmacies kind of got their start in Western Pennsylvania around there. So. Uh, I uh, graduated Pitt, got my pharmacy degree there, worked retail for a couple of years in D.C. in people's drugstores. This is dating me. And they were all rolled up in a CVS uh, long after I left. Uh, then I went from retail to graduate school at the University of Virginia, where I got an MBA. And then I really took my career kind of on the corporate side rather than traditional practice side of, of pharmacy. And after after Darden. Uh, my first job was with Baxter. At the time, it was Baxter Travanol, and I was in the parenterals division, uh, building uh, on a, in a product management and then director of marketing position uh, involved in the development of premixed drugs in IV containers. So, you know, before you could get frozen mini bags, before you could get lidocaine premixed in uh, polyvinyl chloride bags, uh, we were on the I was on that team, and it was an exciting time to be part of the whole drug delivery program at Baxter. I jumped out of there with the boss to do an entrepreneurial thing in the world of infusion pumps and ended up uh, through a quick acquisition, without going into all of the details, ended up at Cardinal Health running Cardinal's specialty distribution business uh, as the very first drugs were being introduced that kind of emptied the, onco- the inpatient oncology units uh, in hospitals. Uh, the Procrits and the Neupogens and Zofrans, which kind of emptied the inpatient units and created all of the outpatient chemo clinics, outpatient oncology clinics. We were the wholesale business that shipped drugs direct to physicians' offices. <laughs> and, you know, you hear so much about buy and bill these days. I, I was at the early stage of one of the enablers of buy and build because I was running the wholesale business that was shipping drugs to all these emergent oncology clinics. Uh, did that for a while in Nashville, Tennessee, and then got recruited across the state to Memphis to Acredo, one of the very first specialty pharmacies, where I was chief operating officer of Acredo and Ovifactor in the very early days of multiple sclerosis, growth hormone, 
and enzyme replacement drugs. When it was Biogen, Genentech, and Genzyme were really the, the three early stage companies that were the pioneers of that. We had a big contract with Biogen uh, for Avonex and a contract with Genzyme. And uh, looking back on it, this was kind of in the early aughts. It was really the beginning stages of specialty pharmacy. There were four or five specialty pharmacies out there. You had uh, Priority and CuraScript down here in Florida. You had Acredo. Uh, Caremark was kind of dabbling in it. Theracom and, and Statlanders in Pittsburgh. And those were the, the you know, kind of the five uh, early stage specialty pharmacies, and you could practically track everybody's career that's in the business now back to one of those five pharmacies, I bet. We were acquired at uh, Acredo by Medco. We had, a big, we had a big contract with Medco, and then they eventually acquired us. I stepped out after that because I wasn't sure whether I wanted to go to New Jersey where Medco's headquarters were, and then was recruited by Aetna to move to Orlando, which is where I live now, and ran Aetna's specialty pharmacy, and ultimately their mail order operations. So I had both the expensive drugs and the cheap drugs under me from a pharmacy operations standpoint. And then about three and a half years ago, saw the opportunity to uh, essentially join a couple investors and recapitalize a company called eTech. And I joke about it. I say I kind of tripped and fell through the looking glass into digital health three years ago. And now it's it's like all digital for me, and I'm in this world of ingestible microchips right now. And CEO of Vtech RX. Yeah. Now, is there like an like an origin story as to why you had mentioned kind of the base of specialty pharmacy came from like a, like a handful of people or even a handful of pharmacies? Why is it there? There's such a concentration in Orlando, though, because I feel like Orlando is like or like Central Florida is kind of like the Silicon Valley of specialty pharmacies. It's like they're all there almost, or the, like a large percentage of them are there. You're, you're absolutely right. Uh, I don't know the full story. I know most of it. And one of these days, I'm going to take the time to go back and, and put all the pieces together. But two pharmacies got their start here. It was Cure, Script, and Priority. Priority was actually a division of Binley Western, if you remember Binley Western Drug Wholesaler. So they put up a specialty pharmacy down here. Priority was both a, a wholesaler, like a specialty wholesaler and a specialty pharmacy. And then CuraScript came along. CuraScript was acquired by, uh, by Express Scripts. Uh, ultimately, Priority got, well, I, can, I forget who bought who. But in the middle, of, so those two were down here. And then the thing that really kind of kicked it in the higher gear was Aetna decided back in, call it 2005, I think, Aetna decided to internalize specialty pharmacy. Aetna had a contract with three different specialty pharmacies. They had a contract with Priority, I think, with us at Acredo and Theracom. And Aetna decided they were going to get into the business full time. And they put a bid out saying to their three partners, we want you to do a 50-50 joint venture with us and we're going to build a pharmacy. And Priority won that bid. And so Priority and Aetna got together and said, where are we going to put the pharmacy? And Priority said, well, we're probably going to put half the people into it. Why don't you do it here in Orlando? So they built out a 
70,000 square foot facility, it's kind of ironic, you know, how your, your career works in circles. You're never not sure who you're going to end up working for or working with. So priority in Aetna, build a specialty pharmacy, a very nice specialty pharmacy down here in Orlando near the airport. They take all of the business that we had at Credo into that facility. And then three years later, I end up running it because, you know, we get acquired at Credo from Medco. I jump out and then Aetna recruits me to come in and run the facility. Mm. And, and literally, I'm seeing patients' records that I saw up in Memphis when I was in the, uh, the, the Acredo pharmacy. So that, that Aetna deal really kind of established another big specialty pharmacy down, down here. Then the guy I was working for at Aetna, Dwayne Barnes, leaves Aetna when we do the deal with CVS. He joins Prime Therapeutics and decides they're going to build a facility down here. And they practically duplicate the size of our facility. They put an 80,000 square foot pharmacy down here. And after that, it was off to the races. CVS had to come down. Walgreens had to come down. Yeah. Walmart came down on and on. And I estimate, you know, I joke about it. You could walk from one specialty pharmacy to the next and just pick up a bottle of water and you could probably make it all around town from one specialty pharmacy to the next. Yeah. Uh, I've, I can attest to that. I've had a couple meetings with some of them on site there and, and I'm walking into one and I just look like across the street. I'm like, wait, that's, is that another <laughs> specialty pharmacy? And, um, and then that's when it started to kind of click for me. So very, very interesting, uh, kind of backstory there on, on kind of the foundation of yeah. specialty pharmacy. Uh, now tell us a little bit about, um, uh, eTech RX and the technology, um, you know, maybe give us a little primer on, um, the ingestibles and how this is working with adherence and, and, um, and then a little bit about why um, eTech is different and what you guys um, have visions for um, in, the, in the market. Yeah. The technology is, is based on the, uh, the famous or infamous potato experiment that we all ran in high school where you take an anode and a cathode and you stick it in a potato and you can light a light bulb or you stick it in an orange and you light a light bulb on the principle of, you know, if you get some free, uh, free ionic solution between a positive and negatively charged metal. I, I used to be able to write all this out, but uh, <laughs> I, I'm not that good anymore. You get the point. Uh, and microchips now, integrated circuits now, have become so power efficient that you only need microvolts to power them. So you can actually create enough energy with a little bit of magnesium, I'm talking about milligram quantities of magnesium and silver chloride on a biocompatible inert piece of plastic smaller than your fingernail and a microchip such that you can power up that microchip with magnesium, silver chloride, magnesiums, your positive, silver chloride, your negative. Uh, put that in an ionic solution where there's any amount of free chloride ion, which is your gastric juices. And that microchip will send a signal one meter off your body. You essentially become your own FM radio station for 20 minutes. <laughs> and and that's, that is the core of the technology. Huh. So we have two different technologies now cleared by the FDA. We recently got our clearance back on December 6th. So Congratulations. Have, that's, that's a big deal. Thanks. 
Yeah, it is. It is a big deal. And we've got a lot of people to thank for it. A great team, great investors, great research collaborators, great consultants. And it, it really was a team effort. So thanks. Uh, and then we were the second to market. The first is Proteus Digital Health. Proteus established the category with a de novo application. So they had more work to do than we did. So kudos to them to establish what the FDA now calls a a device category that they have labeled ingestible event markers. So these devices mark the fact that you have ingested them. Uh, We filed the standard 510K, which we claim to be substantially equivalent to Proteus. The difference between us and them from a technical standpoint is they use the same kind of chemistry. They use magnesium and copper. We use magnesium and silver chloride. And their microchip powers up when it hits your gastric juices. Their microchip releases its energy in a, it's programmed to release its energy as an electroconductive charge. So it needs a physical medium to get its energy kind of around or move. What that means is it's kind of like your heartbeat. So you can pick up the electrical signal of your heartbeat on an EKG lead, right? Uh, that's because the, your, your heart generates electroconductive energy and it stops at the surface of your skin. So there, for Proteus, you need to wear a patch and the patch picks up the signal. And the patch is really, if you think about it, a re-engineered EKG lead. So you need to wear that patch all the time. You don't have to. You could take it on and off, but it's just from a convenience standpoint. You just leave it on your abdomen. Our microchip turns our energy into a radio signal. So it just converts the energy into a different waveform, and a radio signal can get off body. So therefore, we don't need a patch. So our signal goes one meter off your body in all directions, and it's good for about 20 minutes. And then the magnesium and silver chloride reaction completes. And the tag is just, as I say, taken out with the trash. Uh, it's an ingestible, it is not a digestible device. Uh, and the advantage of us being able to get off body, as we say, is that the current reader, the thing that picks up the signal, looks like a lanyard around your neck. It's about the size of a stack of business cards that you hang around your neck. You only need to hang it around your neck for five minutes. You swallow your pill. The signal is generated in five minutes. The reader picks it up in a second, and then you can take it off and put it back on its charging pad. We have plans to miniaturize the reader so that it becomes kind of part of your current digital ecostructure, if you will. So we're all wearing uh, Fitbit bands or some kind of digital tracker we can put that into the band of a smartwatch or a Fitbit or a life alert for an elderly person or something like that. Uh, theoretically, we could put it in the base of any kind of smart speaker. And you could say, hey, you know, Amazon Echo, I can't say her name right now because she's sitting behind me on my counter <laughs> and she'd start talking. To me. We all have that problem when we're, when we're on the phone. But you get my point. You could say, Hey, you know who I'm about to take my pill. And she'd say, well, come over here close to me and I'll listen for it. Mm-hmm. And she'd hear it and bingo. That's interesting. So that's the quick technology overview. Now, what is the challenge um, for someone that is, is uh, radio frequency challenged like myself and possibly some other listeners there? 
what is the challenge of of having that go directly that that signal hitting the smartphone instead of having to go through some of these other devices where it potentially has to go on a band or into a into a speaker um what about like if i have an iphone will, will it ever be the technology where i take my pill and then my iphone knows yeah so the reader think of the reader as a bluetooth device so the reader picks up the signal from your stomach and immediately turns it into a bluetooth signal that then transmits to an app on your phone. So part of the system is an app on your phone that as soon as you swallow your pill and we get the signal, your, your phone app says to you, thank you for taking your pill. And immediately then that goes to a secure cloud server. And so your clinician or your pharmacist sees that practically real time. So we have an app for the Android platform. We have an app for our iOS platform. So now what are the, the real world applications here? So um, I'm assuming it's to uh, really monitor adherence and to even promote potentially people to be more adherent. But what what is like the workflow look like? Um, I guess how do how does this even get into the market? You know, is it through pharmacies, clinicians? Um, what, what's that process like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, there's two questions there. One is just kind of the workflow question. You know, how do you get the chip to where you want it to be? And the other is, what are the target markets? So first on, on the workflow, the product itself, the physical product that has been cleared by the FDA is an empty hard gelatin capsule. So the microchip is on a piece of thin plastic film about the thickness of saran wrap. So think of it as wallpaper on the inside wall of an empty capsule. So as a pharmacist, you've dealt with empty capsules occasionally if you've had to encapsulate something. If you're in a research environment, you're doing a lot of over-encapsulation to kind of blind the active ingredient and a placebo and everyone's getting a pink capsule or something like that. So there will be a pharmacy today could take any medicine off the shelf, oral solid, tablets or capsules, and encapsulate them in our empty capsule, and they have a digital version of that drug. An example of that is today we're running a study with uh, Gilead's drug Truvada for PrEP, for the prevention of HIV transmission. So we're working with Brigham and Women's and the Fenway Institute. Fenway Institute's a big HIV, well-known HIV treatment and resource in, uh, research institution in Boston. So we are working with them and a pharmacy in Atlanta, a current pharmacy in Atlanta right now is helping us encapsulate Truvada for those patients. And what the researcher do, or researchers are doing, this is kind of early stage, just phase one in Boston, just to understand how the patients, the subjects react to the system and how they like it and how they're, how they're dealing with the data, how they share the data, that sort of thing. And then phase two, which will start in January, is really to customize apps and feedback to really drive adherence to the highest level that they can. So that's an example of pharmacy encapsulating an existing medicine and then the clinicians working in particular therapy, say HIV, HIV prevention in this case, to kind of 
customize the apps to drive rewards, adherence, reminders, or, or whatever. The other kind of workflow, ultimately, we can sell empty capsules with the sensor in them to manufacturers, and the manufacturer could run it through their manufacturing line. Now, when they do that, that becomes a drug-device combination, and they're going to have to file an amendment to their NDA. But it'll be a much more elegant product. It'll be a drug-device, its own NDC, ready to go into the market. Now, how do you... Um how does let's say you have you're taking two different medications that are using this particular technology how does it distinguish which one of those medications you took right uh the microchip due to the powers of microchips can now be serialized Mm -hmm. so each microchip can have a individual unique serial number And the pharmacy would then have essentially a decoder book and know that serial numbers 1 through 500 are drug A, 500 through 1,000 are drug B. Gotcha. All right. That makes sense. great. So you can have – now, this is going to involve a fair amount of coordination, obviously, and a a pretty sophisticated system, but the technology will will allow for – individual dose identification. Now, one thing that's important to note is that information is back in the pharmacy. It's not in the pill. So from a a HIPAA standpoint and a cybersecurity standpoint, okay, people have asked the question, gee, I've now got this broadcast thing in my stomach that's sending a signal. What if somebody hacks into it and picks up that? Is somebody going to know what drug I'm on if they're listening, you know, if they've got some super sophisticated listening device, all they're going to get is they're going to get an indecipherable number. It's not an NDC number. It's, and they have to be listening on our very specific band, and there's nothing that they can do with it. So literally, there's no PHI in the pill going to the reader. There's no PHI in the reader going to the app on your phone. It's not until it hits your app on your phone that it then get that it then gets personalized, but then it's under all of the security of the app, and it's no different than a banking app on your phone. Now, an, from another um, perspective on the consumer and and actually taking this, is there also some sort of like encryption or encoding to know that the pill that went into my body is going to ring my Bluetooth app? Because I mean, now I'm picturing me sitting next to someone else. And they're using the same right. system because you're, you're, the company was very successful, hit scale, and now it's everywhere. Yeah. What happens when right. people are, are next to each other and that ha- and, and that yeah. happens? Yeah, and one of the very first things that I always remind everybody of when I talk about this, uh, and just before I answer your question directly, is that any patient who is on this system is going to opt into it. They're going to know they're on the system. Okay, there aren't going to be any chips and pills that nobody knows about. Okay, you're going to have to know you're on the system. You're going to have to know you have the reader. You're going to have to know how to work the reader and the app and, and all of that. Okay, so then with the serialization of the, the microchip and linkage to the reader, we're going to be able to kind of quote unquote pair the, the pill.
Hill signal to the reader so that we don't get any of this misidentification. There's other things that could happen with, if you think about your, your Apple Watch or other sophisticated wearable devices that are now measuring heartbeat or blood pressure, that sort of thing, where they're getting other biometric information and they, your heartbeat actually is a pretty good biometric. If you did the cardiac, a one lead tracing of your heartbeat for 30 seconds, it is almost as good as a fingerprint in differentiating me from you. And you, you can kind of coordinate that with the signal coming out of your stomach. Yeah, that, that's starting to make sense now that, I mean, I'm wondering if there's going to be a time where we have this overload of signal transmission coming from our body and that there's these other um, devices trying to read that and, and what that's going to have, like what type of effect that's going to have on some of these things. Do you foresee like a potential where I took a pill and then I'm also looking at, you know, my my EKG on my watch and just seeing if there there might have been some sort of like spike somewhere because of that particular um, signal transmission? Well, well, you are on to something there, and there are a lot of people thinking about that. I was at a conference just recently in Washington, D.C. that was sponsored by – here's an interesting connection of uh, organizations, the USP and IEEE. So IEEE is the International Electronics and Electrical Engineering Association that sell, sets all standards for – Telecom. So IEEE sets the standards for things like Wi-Fi and Bluetooth so that everybody's device talks to one another. USP, you and I know what USP does. You know, they're the standard organization for drug standards and purity and quality. And they're seeing the intersection of pharmaceuticals and digitals and are at the very early stages, they brought us in as experts to talk about how do we set standards for exactly what you're talking about. And you think about what we've got now, we've got standards around local area networks, LAN, which you know are really uh, kind of the Wi-Fi standards. And there's wide area networks, the cellular standards. And we're, there's a personal area network and your personal area network is all of your Bluetooth standards around your just kind of your personal ecosystem. The next layer down is a body area network, a BAN. So we're going from personal area network to body area network because now you've got, you could have a patient that's got, like you say, a pacer, a continuous glucose monitor, maybe a, a halter monitor on, and you got a lot of signals bouncing around there. And so this whole band concept, body area network, is in its early stages, and now we're going one layer deeper to ingestibles. So like I said, I literally feel like I fell through the looking glass and I'm down among the, the silicon chips, and organic chemistry from pharmacy school is way, way in the back of my mind, and now I'm trying to get back to my physics class that, you know, I'm thinking, oh, my God, why didn't I take more physics electives when I was in pharmacy school? Yeah, that man. Well, I will say you just cleared up a lot of questions I had about when I'm ever setting up a network on my phone. You just told me what all those like acronyms just meant, which I had no idea what they meant. I was, and I thought I would never know. Like I literally would see those. And I'm like, I'll never know what that means. And now I know. Thanks to thanks to you. So I appreciate that. <laughs> 
that's just due to me hanging around with a bunch of a bunch of really smart engineers in my shop. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think I think it's a, it's it's an amazing piece of technology. And um, what what are you where are you now in terms of uh, where the company is now? And um, I know you you mentioned there's some studies, but then also tell me like what are the next steps in order for this to um, or where you see it to need to be to um, to be a success in terms of getting to market. Yeah. So we've achieved our significant milestone. We're now clear so we can sell product. And really, and you've talked about this on some of your podcasts, and it's a hot topic, medication adherence in general. How do we improve medication adherence? How do we implement medication adherence tools? What are the right tools for the right problem? Uh, so what we are, and I believe that there is no one silver bullet technology for medication adherence. You, if you think about all of the different challenges across medication adherence from a patient who has mild, high cholesterol and has taken a low dose of a statin to someone who just had a $350,000 heart-lung transplant, okay, they're, they're very different medication adherence challenges. And what we're doing is we are segmenting the market into those therapeutic kind of classes. And when you look at those, those groupings, you see different interested parties in terms of who is really interested in and is going to benefit from that person, that patient being more adherent. Is it the pharma company? Okay. And typically that'll be, well, is it a brand or is it a generic drug? Are, is pharma interested or not? Okay. Is it a self-insured? Is it a self-insured employer? Is it a fully at risk? employer or or is it a loved one is it me and you who are worried about our elderly parents not taking their afib meds and we're breaking those segments down and we are reaching out to the interested parties in those segments to say we have got to do more work in quantifying the value of medication adherence if we can prove a 15 percent increase in medication adherence what is the value of that? What, what is the economic outcome of that? You know, one of my, one of my favorite uh, speakers is Doug Long from IQV. I don't know if you've ever heard any of Doug's presentations. He's been giving presentations on drug trends since, you know, the dawn of time. And one of his favorite phrases is to anyone who's in the healthcare space, whether you're a provider or a manufacturer, and his quote is, if you don't have outcomes, you won't have income. It's <laughs> a good, it's a good point. Right. So we are going to have to quantify the outcomes of medication adherence, a 15% increase in medication adherence gets you what? And so then how do we build a service model around that and the pricing mechanisms around? And it's going to be different for that statin patient than it is for a transplant patient. It's going to be different for a patient who is on an oral oncology drug that's $750 per tablet, okay? And if they don't take their medicine, they're, they're gonna have a bad event or they're gonna have no impact in seven to 10 days, rather immediate, versus somebody who's on an oral MS drug, thinking about specialty pharmacy, an oral multiple sclerosis drug, that's really a long-term chronic therapy. You're trying to prevent an exacerbation nine months from now. It's a completely different set of economics. 
but there are interested parties in each segment. So different customers, different drugs, different service models. We are we're literally going to be launching pilots with exclusive rights to the technology in these sectors over the, the next couple of months and quarters. What's interesting that you, you bring up is, you know, the different, you know, um, stakeholders and the different interests that people can have. I was at the uh, PQA's um, leadership summit recently and adherence was a big topic. And a lot of it also was, was tied around to social determinants of health. Um, but one right. thing that, that the complaints that a lot of people had is, is measuring actual adherence because the only thing that we know now is what the patient reports, which is often um, incorrect, especially if they're like, yeah, I take it every day, even though they're missing, you know, whatever the case may be, however much they're missing. And then we have the claims data, but that also still doesn't mean that they're actually picking it up. You know, it could be a, right. a pile of it sitting at home or, you know, or, you know, it's still on the shelf potentially in, in, um, in will call. Um, but this is, takes it to another level where it gives people actual, um, the, the actual ability to know what actual adherence is. So there's so much, it's going to extend further out and provide more information to take action, I'm assuming. You're right. And what it does is another key question that people ask is, you know, how are patients going to react to this? And my answer is, you know, they're, they're typically going to ask the question that lots of us ask when we're presented with a change in whatever it might be. It's like, what's in it for me? It's the with them question. What's in it for me? And now a provider or a payer can provide a patient with a whole heck of a lot of incentives because we have an indisputable record that they have taken their medicine. You know, so... You know, we talk about gamification. You talk about rewards. I'm hooked to my Apple Watch now. You know, I love closing my rings on my exercise bands. So all of that is now available. All of those reward mechanisms are now available to us in medication adherence because you have a, a real source of truth that the patient actually took, took their meds. Yeah, it makes sense. So what are, what are your thoughts on kind of taking a step back and looking at like the broader things of, of adherence and of digital patient ed education and just digital therapeutics in general? Like what are you seeing now as like your thoughts on like the future of um, the digital world and healthcare and in pharmacy? What, what, what do you think is coming? What are your thoughts on it? I mean, obviously you're, you're supportive of, of the new wave of technology, but um, what are some of the things that are going on in your head around digital pharmacy? You know, one of the one of the things and I'm just re I'm reacting to your question and thinking about an article I just read. And uh, there was an interesting two part article written by uh, Neil Koshla, who is the son of Bernard Koshla, the famous venture capitalist out on the West Coast, about why digital health has not kind of taken off uh, in the last 10 years. And, he, you know, he talks about the silos in healthcare between providers, payers, manufacturers, PBMs, pharmacies, you know, uh, institutions. And my first reaction to your question is the place where I think innovation is going to be accepted more readily is in integrated delivery mechanisms, integrated systems where you have all of the stakeholders kind of on the same team. It's the UPMCs. It's the Kaisers, it's the partners in Boston, where you don't have uh, 
a, a PBM kind of fighting with the pharmacy and then fighting with the physician and you've got prior auth and all of that. So I, I think that the system, the healthcare system in general, I agree with Koshla in his article, the system is hard for innovation to, to penetrate because there's so many kind of perverse incentives on, on utilization and fee for service and things like that. So that when you present a technology that says, look, it's going to increase costs in the pharmacy, but it's going to decrease your medical costs. Okay, well, boy, that's on two different P&Ls. Good luck with that, right? When you get into these integrated networks, guess what? They're all on the same P&L. Everyone's talking on, you know, everyone's talking on the same page. And the guy at the top of the organization can say, pharmacy, you're doing this because it's going to help out on decrease of readmissions for a congestive heart failure patient. Let's go. So I'm excited about the response I get from IDNs on the, the adoption of the technology. And we're really looking forward to kind of 2020 being a breakout year for us in, in that space. Yeah. Uh, what is there any technologies um, other than obviously um, etex? Is there any technologies that you are excited about that you've heard about that's um, uh, either new or might be coming in the future or is here now, but you know maybe no one's heard enough about? Well, I think that there's been a lot written about this. The technology that I'm kind of most interested in right now, outside of ours, and it's kind of the next step is this whole digital therapeutics field or prescription digital therapeutics. Started in the behavioral health space with cognitive behavioral therapy sessions. You hear CBT, not CBD, CBT, <laughs> cognitive behavioral therapy, okay, uh, on apps. And how those applications, in many cases, work in concert with a medication. So it's not like the the app is replacing the drug, okay? It's work, in many cases, they're working in combination. And I've had some really encouraging conversations with uh, prescription digital therapeutics companies about, okay, when the patient finishes their session on their app, wouldn't it be good if it just asked the patient, well, did you take your medicine today? Or the app would say, we saw that you did take your medicine today, great. Okay, or you didn't, let's do it now and bring that all together. So I think that this digital therapeutic space is really interesting. There is there are apps out now for oncology, behavioral health, cardiology. There's gonna be a sorting out. There's a lot lot going on in that space. So there's gonna be a shakeout and some consolidation. Uh, but it's definitely real, and it's also something for pharmacy to watch because these apps are, there's a limited number of them, but some of them are prescription only. So you, the physician writes the order for the app. The patient downloads the app and can't activate it without an authorization code that they get from the pharmacy. So, okay, how many pharmacists and pharmacies are ready to dispense the auth code for an app? And when the patient's having trouble with their app, they're calling the pharmacy, and it's no different than an adverse drug event. Okay, you know, I just got a rash because I took my pill. Well, now I'm calling up the pharmacy because I'm frustrated because my app isn't working. <laughs> and is, is, is the pharmacy ready to handle that? 
Yeah, that that's very I did not know that there was that piece. I knew that it was going to be prescriptioned, but I actually think because there was no you know, I'm just thinking about the dangers of like, okay, there's a prescription for a medication. We need to give it to the pharmacist because one, it needs to be distributed. Right. Um, but two, it needs to be checked for like safety, accuracy and all this stuff. But when I'm thinking about a digital therapeutic where you're prescribing um, just the application, I, in my mind, I'm like, oh, you obviously you would just skip the whole pharmacy thing because there's no actual medications involved. But that's very interesting to know that you actually, it also needs to be potentially checked by a pharmacist. Um, and then- because they're- there could, there could be a billing code. It, it could literally have a J code or a HICPIC code. Mm-hmm. So you're going to need an authorized provider to kind of kick that code off. And that's where the pharmacy comes in. Wow, that is quite interesting. I think that's a good segue. I, I always like to hear about, you know, the different roles that pharmacists can, can play. And um, I guess this is a good segue to, to maybe hear about your advice that you would have for um, new pharmacists in their careers or, or how to keep up with the digital space. Um, what, what do you have to say to new professionals that are, that are now starting their careers or, or maybe even looking for a switch in their career? My advice would be to, would be that this digital health space is real and it will, this is a bit of a, a projection on my part, a prediction on my part, but I think it is just as viable uh, a career path as a pharmacist who decides they want to be an oncology pharmacist or an immunology pharmacist that, and I've said this in presentations that we need more pharmacists to become really expert in this digital space, or we're going to get blindsided by companies outside of the pharmacy profession coming up with applications that transform the the profession without a lot of input from us. You know, who thought Amazon would be the most disruptive force in in pharmacy, okay? And I joke about it in some of my presentations, but I said, if the pharmacy profession doesn't spend more time understanding the digital space, we run the risk of large number of pharmacists working for guys by the last name of Bezos, or Zuckerberger or Cook. And I don't think any of those guys have RPH after their name. <laughs> nope. Yeah, I think I think you're right there. I think that's a that's a really good point. Um, I think just having a, a you know, having a seat at the table is important for us. And I think that's gonna require us to really start to, like you said, just become experts in all these different spaces that are um, potentially on the horizon. Um, in terms of uh, now, this is going to be a little bit more of a selfish question, um, but in, what's your best advice for leading uh, leading like a company or, or a team or, or something where you're in this an important role as, as a CEO of a company in, in an innovative space? What is the best advice that you would have for someone that would either potentially be doing something similar to you or if you had to hire someone um, to, to put mm-hmm. in your spot? What would, what would your advice be? I think the best piece of advice I ever got over my career is as a manager and a leader is lead by example and make sure you define example broadly enough. And that means work harder than anybody else, uh, high integrity, high, high honesty and good communication. So if, if you want an effective team uh, and all I believe all good things come from the team, not individuals. 
you need to lead by example. You need to set the right tone in terms of work effort, communication, integrity, honesty, and communication. I appreciate that. Those sound like words from a very wise man. So thank you for that. <laughs> uh, all right, Harry, this, this conversation was wonderful. I definitely want to wrap it up here. Um, what, what's the best way that people can get in contact with you if they want to connect um, to learn more about eTechDRX? Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me on LinkedIn pretty easily, Harry Travis or uh, eTechDRX.com, E-T-E-C-T-R-X. There are too many consonants, but that's the name we've got. So eTechRx.com, you, you can find me there. Perfect. All right. I forgot about my bonus question. Um, I, I almost let you go without asking you this. Oh. What if you had to take one person out to dinner and they, that person has to be alive, though, and they have to be famous. So it means they have to have like a Wikipedia page, most likely. Who would that person be and why? This is a, a person who is alive today, right. right? They have to be currently alive. Currently alive that I that I take out to dinner. Uh, I'm I'm a little bit of a political junkie, so I think the most interesting person on the stage right now, from an international standpoint, would be Boris Johnson. Mm, okay, I like that. Now, I, just right off the top, of it, I had to I'd, I'd get a kick out of having dinner with him. Yeah, uh, and see what is because I think what happens over there is pretty significant for the world. Yeah, I, I would agree. Uh, I, I would actually like to be joining on that dinner too, because I'd like to have a conversation with him as well. <laughs> <laughs> Harry, thank you so much for, for your time and your insights. Really appreciate it. Well, I, uh, I appreciate everything that you do for the profession. So keep it up and good luck with the podcast. Well, how crazy was that episode? I'm super excited about all the new technologies that are coming to help with digital patient engagement, adherence, and just see where all this stuff's going to take us and take healthcare. Um, I would really pay attention to some of the advice he gave because I think it's it's something that's kind of timeless. And I think that in terms of adapting to all this new technology and just, you know, taking things head on and really having a seat at the table, like it's so important for us to do that and be on top of these things. So um, I really do hope you guys enjoyed that episode. Uh, make sure to connect on any of your favorite social media path platforms. Subscribe if you haven't yet. And as always, I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Pharmacy.